Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. All right, let's talk about our time together in this series called Resolve. We're going to talk about the song we just sang today. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. And he's perfect in every way. And he's calling us deeper still to love, love, love. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to explore that he's a good, good father. And, and today what I want, to, I want you to uh, learn today is I want us to learn how he fathers us, how he takes us deeper still into love, love, love. How is he a good father? And, and what are his methods of taking us to this deeper place where he's taking us to love? And um, just let's just start by defining what a good father is. Um, it's sometimes it's easier to define what good is or anything by what the opposite would be. So what, what would be the opposite of a good father? What would be the easiest way to ruin a child as a parent? What would be the easiest way to ruin a child? Well, I looked that up, and um, I found a woman that uh, is somewhat of an expert on parenting. She teaches at San Diego State University. She's written 90 uh, scholarly journal articles, a couple bestsellers, Narcissism Epidemic and Generation Me. And Jean says this about the easiest way to ruin a child. She said, you know, uh, of course... um, with the ob- obvious uh, exception of, you know, abusing your child, here's what her, her answer was. With the obvious exception of abusing your child, overindulgence. Overindulgence. That is my candidate for the easiest way to ruin your child. And it's the easiest way because it's so easy. You just, you don't say no. Just let the, the children do whatever they want. It ruins them in a couple ways, and it's not so easy later because, first of all, it doesn't teach them perseverance or self-control. It's sometimes the same thing. And she said that is the single most important thing to be able to live an adult life. The second reason an overindulgent parent ruins a child by, is because it often causes narcissism. And if it doesn't cause narcissism, they're not sure about that, then it certainly does not prepare them for the day that they leave the protective custody of their household and realize they're not the center of the universe. So the easiest way to be a bad parent is to be an overindulgent parent. God is a good, good father. He does not want us to be weak. Overindulgent parents cause weak children. Good parents cause strong children. And today, I want you to see how God, as a parent, I want you to see parentally thinking about how he works in our life so that he is is designing our life so that we would understand these verses in James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Hey, that's what our scholar said we needed, perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work, that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Mature and complete and lacking in nothing. So let's just say this is the destination for us that God, the good, good Father, has for us. This is the journey of our faith that we're on together. And he says, uh, James says, listen, he is a good Father, and he's going to bring you to this final place of maturity, complete, lacking in nothing. How do you get here? Oh, you're going to need perseverance. And how do, why would we need perseverance? Because you're going to encounter various trials. And when you do, you should be grateful because at that time you'll know that your God is not an overindulgent father. 
He's a good, good father. And that's how he works. As a matter of fact, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here is where he'll take you, right here to the desert. That's where God does his work. He, he led Jesus there. He, he has led all the saints there because that's where we get perseverance, and perseverance can produce maturity. Now, we're going through a book together. It's kind of, we're using that as kind of a helpful hand, uh, um, supplemental reading. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you'd like to get in on that with us, we'd love you to join us. We bought a bunch more books that are on, on sale in the lobby. Uh, pick one of those up next week, our home for next week. We're going to read chapters three through five, and I'll be teaching on that. This week, or, or if you want to be involved in a discussion group to help you with that, you'd have to come to first hour, and then you go right across the hallway, go to our old auditorium. Over 130 people were in it last week. So by all means, you can join in anytime you want. If you want to get your group in a discussion about it, then you can go to our website and look at our discussion questions and supplemental uh, readings, okay? So you could do that at work or at home or start your own groups, in other words. The point is, we're trying to go through this experience together. And today, today, I've come here today so that you understand that this thing that we're calling the wall or the desert, and every Christian is going to experience this desert, okay? Most don't get through it. Most get stuck at the wall, but everyone is going to go there because that's where, because you can't graduate. Here's the problem, because God will not allow you to graduate from the desert until you have a new, deeper, more profound understanding of his goodness. In other words, he doesn't just push you into passing because you age out of this. It's not amount of time, it's whether or not you, you get it. And so you're going to go to the desert and most people get stuck there. There's six phases. We're finding out that there's six stages of the Christian life, and there's a potential for six stages of the Christian life. And let me go through those very quickly so that you'll understand where the wall fits in. But the first stage is this new understanding of the love of God. This is this born again, uh, born from a, a, above, some Bibles say. It's when you realize that it's by grace that you receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ, and it transforms you. He is your Lord and Savior. And you're going to want to know more about him and God and how much he loves you. And so you go to the next stage, which is the learning stage. That's usually a, a stage of our development in our, in our uh, faith so that we're committed to learning more and getting committed in some kind of community. That means church. Usually we get involved in a church and we're just growing in our understanding. We're connecting with other people. And then we kind of say, I want to serve this church. I want to serve God and his people. And so we go on to the th stage three, which is, you know, the action stage. It's when you're serving and, and, you, and you just enjoy using your gifts that God gives you and the joy that it gives other people uh, in doing that. Most churches stay right here with these three. Commit learn, serve, repeat, commit, learn, serve, commit, learn, serve. And you know, Hey, it keeps everybody moving. As uh, you get a t-shirt sometimes, here's the t-shirt that comes with that, that church is Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> now, one of the reasons churches stay there is because it's somewhat comfortable and it's simple and superficial. The problem is stage four comes. It's the wall and the journey inward the wall and the journey inward. And usually what happens is something jolts you, something outside of life, you know, outside of your kind of 
control jolts you and shakes the slab of your soul. And, and things just aren't even anymore. So sometimes it has to do with, with family, maybe an unfaithful spouse or a renegade teenager or a death in the family. Sometimes it's the, the stages of life are difficult enough to jolt you. When I was in my mid-30s, uh, I was here in this desert, and it was death by a thousand paper cuts. I had two jobs. I went back to school. I had three young children. My mother had just passed and had died, and, and I just felt like, um, I felt like I had just all these straws in my soul just sucking the life out of me. And it was a, it was a dark time for a, for a prolonged period of time. And, and the, the point of this is that this is a frighteningly vulnerable stage, this wall, this desert experience, because we have more questions than we have answers. And, and, and the 10-year-old faith that I had, my 25-year-old faith, wasn't working at 35. And, and commit, learn, and serve couldn't help anymore. And that's most people refuse to lean into this. And this is where they stagnate. But if they choose to journey inward, they're going to find it's a very personal, honest, inward place where we're, it's, it's unsettling because we have, to, we, we have to unpack everything before we can find out, you know, what's happening. There's, there's a great amount of love on the other side of that. But this, what we want to look at today is the reason I came here today is at this wall in this desert that's where God parents you. That's where he's going to show himself to be a good, good father. And, and I, I'm, I've come here to say that if you, if you haven't been to the wall, you will be there. You're going there. If you haven't been in the desert, you're going to go there. And the other reason um, I've come today is to, to help you not stay for too long. You, don't have, you, can, you can move on. You can move through it if you understand the purpose of it. Now, today, today there's, a, there's different kinds of walls, and today's wall, listen carefully, today's wall is sifting, not discipline, right? It's, re, it's refining. It's not punishment. It's kind of being broadsided. It's not consequences. In other words, this is not a cause-effect relationship to you're doing something wrong, and this is the, the consequence for it. We're going to study that next week. Don't miss that. But to this, today, we're going to talk about a wall where you're, you're, there's nothing technically that you're doing wrong. It's just God working in your life. Okay, let's get back to the stages. After you go through the, the wall and the journey inward, you get to the fifth stage where you're starting to journey outward. It's a little bit like three where you're doing things, but now you're on the other side of this and you're, you're so turned outward towards other people that you enjoy giving without necessarily even needing to be recognized. And there's an inner tranquility in your soul that just causes a stability, an aura of stability around you. It's, you're just not rattled anymore. And then, and then the, the sixth and final stage is this transformed into love. Transformed into love is what James was talking about, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. This is the destination God has for us. This is his ambition for us over here. And the last thing you need to know about this journey is, unfortunately, it's not necessarily a road. It's more of a set of circles, a set of cycles. And you're going to learn new lessons each time, something that needs to be refined out, or you might have to learn 
an old lesson, but in a deeper way. It might be something that's part of your bent. We'll talk about that next week, and it, it needs to be realigned, and then again, and then again. The point is the desert, this, this place right here, this wall, it's a place of refining, rebuilding. It's a crucible. It's a difficult thing. But on the other side of it, it's, it's beautiful. It's glorious. Now, what I want to do tonight, today is I want us to, I wanted to illustrate how God parents in this way to make us mature and complete and use, requiring us to have perseverance. You can, you can pick almost any saint and see how these six stages work in their life, especially the desert experience. Now, I chose David this time because some of you, many of you are familiar with this David character, and so at least we have some inertia. And I wanted you to see maybe some passages that you're not so familiar with because the passages we're going to look at today are the stories about David hitting a series of walls and how God in this context is purposely taking away every kind of stability that David has for himself. Things that are good, but they can't, they can't make it through the desert. Okay? Well, the story of David. You know that. He, the story pretty much starts out as David just being a little shepherd boy. He's, in many respects, so insignificant that his father even forgets him when the religious leader of the time, his name is Samuel, comes to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. The current king is a, a man named King Saul, but he's not doing his job, and so there'll be a new king, and Samuel comes to the house of, of David, uh, David's father's house, and David walks in, the last one to get there finally, and Samuel says, he's the one. God just told me he's the next king, and, and pours oil on his head and says, you're the one. He goes back to shepherding, living with the smelly sheep. The next story you hear about David is the one you're probably most familiar with. He is delivering cheese to his brothers on the front lines against the Philistine, and there's this giant there, Goliath from Gath. And Goliath is there, and he's talking trash about the only true God in the world, the God of Israel. And while all of the Israeli army cannot muster the courage to deal with him, David picks up five smooth stones. Well, you know the rest of the story. That's the story of David. And uh, he, after that, soon gets promoted to what we would probably be an officer, like a colonel in the army of King Saul. And if you, if you can just imagine that because of his leadership skills plus God's blessing, he becomes a national hero. He is famous, so much so that the number one song on the radio goes like this. Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And everyone's singing it. That song drives King Saul literally insane with jealousy. And from that point on, what we're going to look at now is how God is going to use King Saul's jealousy to span over 10 to 15 years to knock away every foundation that David has because God is a good, good father. He's a good, good father. So let's just kind of survey. I want you to see how in three short chapters, the way this writer writes it, he's just going to go one after another after another so that you see all of this is happening on purpose and in sequence. The first thing he loses, David loses, is his status. In chapter 19, David, as I said, had a, a place of high office and he even kind of hung out at the palace a lot. And it says in chapter 19 that he, he went and 
attacked his enemies, and they, and they pounced on them in such a severe way that they all fled from him. And then David went back to the palace and was playing his guitar for King Saul. And, and the, the insanity welled up and exploded inside of Saul, and Saul grabbed his spear and threw it at David as to kill him. And now David has to flee that status. He goes from national hero to accused traitor and outlaw. You ever lost your reputation? Not because you maybe deserved it, (laughs) but because someone accused you of something you didn't do. He's lost that. He did nothing wrong. But this is happening because he is losing his status because God is a good, good father. Next verse, I mean, literally the next verse, he runs from that uh, situation to his own house where he's met by his wife, Michal, and Michal says, Michal is his wife, but he's also, she's also Saul's daughter, and he runs upstairs to her and tells her the story, and she says, I know my father, and if you spend the night here tonight, if you don't flee tonight, he will kill you in the morning, and so David is lowered out the back window and escapes and he loses his dependence on, from his wife. I don't know how long it will be. No one does. It could be years or even decades before he will ever see her again. Not because he did anything wrong, but because God wants to take away this, this stability that comes with his wife. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. Next verse. He runs from his house and his wife to his mentor, Samuel. He will lose his mentor. And in this case, right, we say the wall or the desert is the place where dreams go to die. So he goes to Samuel, the person that has been someone he's looked up to for maybe his entire adult life, and he's, maybe you could resuscitate this dream. Maybe you could remind me that God has plans for me other than being killed by Saul. And, and while, he, while that's happening, okay, while that's happening, King Saul finds out about it and, and says, sends three detachment of military to go and kill David. So David has to run from Samuel. He will never see Samuel alive again. When Samuel dies, David can't even attend his funeral. And this, now this, this pillar of, of stability has been knocked down because he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And he's perfect all that he does. He's perfect in every way. Finally, or I'm sorry, next, the next verse is the next chapter. All of chapter 20, David loses his friend. Now, I think the author wants us to realize that this is his most precious possession. This is the most important thing for his stability because he spends the entire chapter 20 on how David and his best friend, Jonathan, the son of King Saul, have to say goodbye to one another. In the Bible, in the Bible, Friendship is literally defined by this relationship between Jonathan and David. They are combat brothers. Some of you know what that means. They, they served in the military together. They fell in love because of their mutual respect and courage that they have. And Jonathan realizes, Jonathan is King Saul's son, and he realizes his dad cannot be stopped. And so he tells David that they're going to have to split up. And again, it's a whole chapter of a tender-hearted departure 
where David and Jonathan hug and kiss and weep, and their relationship is so unique. It said, it's so deep. It says, uh, there is nothing like this. Uh, it's beyond anything a man could have for a woman. And Jonathan says, David, you have to leave. You have to run. Go. And he will never see Jonathan again. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. That's who he is. And he's perfect in all of his ways. And he's calling David deeper still. Next story. David loses his self-respect, his dignity. He loses everything. He's run out of places to hide from crazy King Saul and all of Israel. And so he goes to Gath. You probably heard that right. Goliath of Gath, the fortified city where Goliath grew up and his family lives. And so David goes there because it was, it was safer than where, where King Saul might catch him. And so he, in his mind, he reasons the only way he could stay in this town would, to be, would be to appear to be so crazy that people would be afraid to confront you or to talk to you. And so he is, you see David now clawing, it says, at the gates of Gath, all the while slobbering all over himself. Why? What has happened to this man? The point is, what did he do wrong? All he did was, was defended the name of God and took the head of this cocky giant. He did what none of the other soldiers would do. And from pretty much that point on, doing God's will has got him now here. I mean, what happened to the David that, we, that is the hero in our hearts, right? The one we talk about across the parking lot in the children's ministry. Do you think they have a, a cartoon Veggie Tales where David is like a rabid dog, scratching and foaming at the mouth? How, how did this happen? The answer is this, that God is pulverizing him. This, he's, he's being unmade. He's, he's being torn apart and then put back together. And not all the parts are being used because he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And he's perfect in all of his ways. And he's, he's calling deeper still to love Hey, love, love, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. That's the desert, the many walls of David. One more story. The only way David was able to uh, get underneath the shadow of this crazy King Saul was that Saul was killed. He was killed in combat when he was fighting, I think, the Philistines and his son, Jonathan, David's best friend, they died next to each other. And listen, they asked David to do the funeral of King Saul. David gets to have the last words on the crazy King Saul who stole 10, 15, maybe 20 years of his life. And so David now gets to get the microphone and say, yeah, 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 okay, I've got a few things to say about this man, and I'm going to tell you the other side of some of those stories uh, and accusations 
of what I've been accused of. And here's what he says at the funeral. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, and they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you with scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments uh, with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Weep, Israel. We lost a hero today. How... How could he say that at this eulogy? How could, he, how, could he, how could he say these things? Because he's not less than the David we knew as a shepherd boy. He's more. He's not vengeful. He's not bitter. And why is that? Because for 15 years, he's been looping through this desert. 15 years, he's been and plowing his way through various walls because he chose to lean into this and trust in the goodness of the Father. This passage has annoyed me and perplexed me for so long that, that he would say these beautiful things about Saul, his enemy, that when I was in a class several years, well, actually about five years ago, uh, with, an, with maybe the most the renowned Old Testament scholar, Bruce K. Walkie, and it was a survey of the Old Testament. And so we were going through the class, the Old Testament pretty quickly. It's a, it's a lot of years, if nothing else. But when we got to 2 Samuel chapter 1, I raised my hand and said, could we just stop for a second? Because I, there's two or three verses that I, I don't understand at all. Why did David praise Saul at this eulogy? And Dr. Walkie, foremost authority of the Old Testament, said, because he loved Saul. Okay, that's not the right answer, so I said, okay, okay, okay. Um, why, why did he love Saul? And Dr. Walkie said, because David was a man after God's own heart. You, 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 can't, you can't love like David loved Saul. On commit, learn, serve, repeat. Do you see? You can't give the eulogy that David gave unless you're over here. And you can't get here unless you go through a desert multiple times. You've got you to get through these walls. David had no offense to what was done to him because there was not enough David left to offend That's what you get. Because the desert life is where we're conformed to the image of Christ. Because he's a good, good father. That's who he is. He's perfect in every way. And he's calling us to be, go deeper still. This deeper still into love, love, love. God's will, God's way is less me and more of God. God's will, God's way is less me and more of God. The desert, the wall, that's where he parents us in a way so that we will care less about more and more about less. We care less about more and more about less. When you're on that side of the wall, you, can, you care about way too many things. 
And when you go to the desert, you've got to care less about more things. You've got to care. <laughs> I mean, you can't care about the things like when you were living in this lush garden over here. When you're in the desert, you just you don't care about things like your ego or your rights or justice. You, you don't care about those things. You care more about a few things. You care more about less. You care more about a few. When you're in the desert, you care about two things. You care about water. You care about shade. That's, that's it. It's all you have time for. It's all you can afford to care for, water and shade. When you're on this side of the desert in your spiritual life, you, you care and love God and others. <laughs> Somehow you're precious little ego got dried up and dehydrated and kind of blew away with the wind. The desert is the place, the wall is the place where you become you. Not the you that maybe you dream about, but the you God dreams about. Mature and complete and lacking in nothing. This is where he conforms you to the image of God, the wall. Everyone goes to the desert. Everyone goes multiple times. Look what Tozer said. It might as well be our purpose statement. I doubt whether God could use someone greatly until he has broken them deeply. I'll say that again. I doubt whether God can use someone greatly until he has broken them deeply. And Tozer did this just because he's observational, right? Because you look at the life of Abraham and Moses and Nehemiah and Joseph, Jesus himself, Paul, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. Who's your saint, who's your hero, study their life. And you're, you're, you're going to read about, you're going to understand is they spent a lot of times in the desert, multiple times in the desert, because that's where God's magic happens. It happens in the midst of these questions and all these doubts and the anger that you have and the anger that you have even towards God, these feelings of loneliness and loss and pain and grief. That's where the desert is. That's where the wall is. That's where God is. And today, I've come here today to tell you this, that you are going to the desert multiple times, and it's okay. That's where God does his work. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that, that he's doing that because he's a good, good father. I'm telling you that's God working in your life. That is God working in your life. He's perfect in every way. Look what, I'm just telling you what Philippians says. Philippians says, it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. God's will, God's way. Less me, more God. It's the desert, it's at the wall, it's, that's where the refining and the sifting and the filtering and the crucible of life, it is him rebuilding us. Not the same parts. I have come here today to tell you this, that you are going to the wall. You will spend time in the desert multiple times. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I, I'm here to tell you that God does that in our lives because he's a good father. He, he wants to, to, to see that we could... In, Thank him in a weird way 
for the various trials that we experience because that causes us to have self-control or perseverance, and perseverance can get us to this final destination, friends. It can get us there to mature and complete and lacking in nothing. This is the goodness of God that does this. So when you are in the desert, listen to me, when you are in the desert, just shed the pride fast. Get rid it. Most of your anger is some expression of self-righteousness. That's what gets left in the desert. Stop. Don't use, like your intellectualization, that's what happens in a church like us. You know, we use big words or we try to think our way out of it. Do not hold on to rigid doctrines that control God. Or think, if you think you can understand God and the mystery of salvation and it fits in a nice little outline, then you can't get to the other side of this desert because on the other side, that's where the mysteries of God are. And your cute little cage can't, uh, can't contain the lion that is God. And so you have to, you're going to have to give up some things like that. And you're certainly going to have to give up control. You want, you want to get through this faster? You give up your pride, your self-righteousness, your control, your intellectualization, some of your binding theology. And one last thing, this is the don'ts. Do not sin. When you're in the desert... You can, you can talk yourself into having the right to compromise. Because it goes like this. This is the shorthand of it. Well, faith ain't working. So I don't deserve this, so I'll just go do something maybe I want to do. Don't do that. There are still consequences. That's what obedience means. When perseverance starts, that's the starting line of obedience. Don't sin. Here's what you do. Okay. That's how you, that's how, those are the things you don't do. Here's what you do do. you got to get one of these. You, you have to get a compass. Because, because you, you could wander in the desert in circles for years. You could miss home by 150 yards because you don't have bearings. So you have to know going, going into the desert, you have to know going into the desert, two things you'll need, this compass. One, it's the Bible. The Bible. You, because, because that's the nature of God and that's the language of God. And so if you're not in the desert, if you just happen to be at one, two, or three, or you're kind of on your next loop, you study, meditate, memorize on the Word of God, because that's the language God speaks. If you want to hear God's voice, I happen to know his heart language is holy writ. And if you haven't put in kind of the workout, you can't hear him in the drought. When you're in the desert, you're at the wall, you'll be volatile with various emotions, and you need to hear from God because you'll think he's nowhere to be found, and you can't... If you don't study and memorize and meditate and, and find out the nature of God and the love of God and the power of God, then you might not hear these words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? I go up to heaven. Where are you? You know, you're there. I lay my bed in the depths and you are there. This is what he says when you're wondering, is God anywhere near me? He says, I am here. Psalm 139, I promised you, there's no place to hide. I'm here. 
You'll need your Bible. You'll need to know your Bible. It should be the, the heart language of your soul. And you're going to need a guide. You're going to need a guide. And that means just someone that's been there and experienced, maybe even someone with a similar temperament or personality. And, and one of the things, I, again, I'll just brag on our church. Again, you know, we have a lot of people at different levels here. We have a number of men and women that have been through multiple deserts. And if I were you, I'd use my lunch money. I'd go without lunch and I'd spend my lunch money on someone else. And I'd, just, I'd take my $3 and I'd go to Wendy's and say, you get anything you want. All you can, all you can have for $3. And I'll meet with you every two weeks. Because one day, I'm going to call you. And I'm going to want you to earn those cheeseburgers. I want you to pray for me. I'm going to want you to sit next to me. And I want you to care about me enough to cry with me. And I'm going to do that for someone else. You can't live this life alone. And you can't get through this desert without a guide. Our whole church is structured for a cascading wisdom. Almost every ministry is structured in a way so that you can hang around with people 10 years older than you. Get your lunch money and spend some time with these men and women. You're going to need a guide. I've come here today to tell you that you're going to spend some time in the desert more than a few times. But I've come to convince you that the reason is, is because he is a good, good father. That's who he is. And he's perfect in every way. And he's calling us deeper to love. I've asked uh, the band to play the exact same song another time. And I'd like us all to sing it together and, and I'd like to sing it, maybe just try to think of an audience. Maybe you're the audience, and I want you to sing it, and we're going to repeat over and over, and I want you to sing it maybe to yourself, and I want you to be thinking about the desert you've been in or maybe that you've been stuck at, at a place in the desert in the, for maybe more than a decade, and I want you to be convincing yourself when you sing this that he is a good, good father, and all this shaking your fist at him, you should have been hugging him and thanking him. Some of you, maybe you should sing it, for a friend or a lover, right? Wouldn't you just sing the song like you're, like you're trying to convince your husband or your wife or your child that he's a good, good father. Just sing the song, sing the lyrics that way. Think of that audience. And you know what? Sing it back to God. Tell him. Tell him you're sorry for accusing him of things that he's never done, that all that time he was loving you, all that time left in the desert is because you held on to self-righteous pride and now you want to get rid of it. Sing it to someone, you or someone else or to God himself, okay? Let's sing that in a way of applying our passage today and a way of uh, worshiping God both, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift, up, we lift up you to us. I'd ask that you would bring back to our minds and memories some of the various trials that we've had to endure and maybe we thought you were being evil or you were being absent and now, now we come to realize that it was these trials that caused us to gain in perseverance so that we wouldn't be weak 
that you are not an overindulgent father. And I'm sorry, God, that that's what I want in you is to be a spoiled child. And so now I see, now I see that perseverance, if it's done right, can produce maturity and completeness and lacking in nothing. And so, God, I desire that for my life because that would glorify you. Give me stories to brag about your work in my life. And I sing this song to you now with the conviction that you are a good, good father. And and I belong to you. I belong to you because you chose me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org. 